Hello, we are live. This is First Impressions, the podcast where we talk about our love for Jane Austen and give a big middle finger to all the haters. I'm Kristen, your host. I am here today with your other normal, regular old host, Maggie. Say hi, Maggie. Wow, thanks for that intro. (laughs) And I'm super excited because we are also joined by a very special guest, listener, Tash, who um, emailed us a while ago and just was so excited to talk about Clueless. Um, Probably if you're a Facebook page follower, you probably saw that we are doing Clueless and we're super excited about it. Um, But Tash, would you like to introduce yourself and give a little background? Yes. Well, I've been listening to you guys for quite a while now. Um, It makes my commute to work a little bit more bearable. I live in Sydney, Australia. I am about to move, but still in Australia, just an hour away. Sydney's crazy. And um, I'm working as a high school English teacher at the moment, studying my master's. So I did um, a lot of research on Emma and adaptations, but the main focus was on Clueless. I, I think that I chose Emma mainly because it is just such an incredible text. I think when you look at textual value and analysis, I would argue that Emma is Austen's most amazing novel. Yeah, a lot of people have said that, and I certainly have, as you heard in our Emma podcast, probably, uh, my feelings about it, but it is definitely a masterpiece for sure. It is. But but there's a lot, too, to be read and learned about Amy Heckerling and her adaptation. It's when I started like looking into it and thinking, oh, watch a few YouTube videos on it or whatever, read a few articles. It's amazing how far into the literature you can get with reading about this adaptation. It's actually a really talked about and important adaptation of Emma. Oh, yeah. And you wouldn't, when you watch it, you wouldn't think it has that sort of academic value. But she's so subtle in the way she comments on society, I suppose, just like Jane Austen. It's incredible. I mean, when you watch it, and and I just watched it again um, in preparation for the podcast, the first thing you think is how funny it is and how well it holds up as a 90s movie. Like, I was in his, you know, it's so great. It's it's like a snapshot in time of how people wanted to. I mean, my high school experience was obviously not like that, but it was just everyone wanted to be Cher, right? Um. (laughs) I did have Paul Rudd. Come on, Tash. <laughs> I do love Paul Rudd, but teaching it to year eleven girls was an interesting experience. When I was told it's so vintage, it's so vintage. did you dress like this in the nineties? <laughs> do, do you know what? Still, okay. I know we're we're gonna talk. Yes, we'll talk about Jane Austen. But I would just like to say that the thing that still strikes me the most about this movie, and the thing that struck me the most when I first watched it is how casually she makes a period reference. Oh, yeah. 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 I was surfing the crimson wave. And when I was in high school, like, to make any acknowledge that you had female body parts was horrifying. (laughs) Yeah. There were a lot of things that were subversive about it. Like, the first time I was aware of a character being gay and that, you know, just being, like, part of life and people are gay. Um, and that was great too. And there, there are actually a lot of progressive things about, about it that way, or, or really interesting things about it that way. But, um, also as an adaptation, you know, I didn't know it was an adaptation when I saw it and I, yeah, and, and I was aware of Emma and it wasn't until, so I had a rotation of five movies that I watched like every week 
uh, for a while. It was just like once a night. I was and so Clueless was one of this is when I was in college. I had a problem. It was just a problem. Like, I had my TV and it came with a built-in VCR and I was like, this is how I'm going to unwind. I had Sense and Sensibility, Emma, Pride and Prejudice, Clueless, and an ideal husband. If you're familiar with that, Oscar Wilde. Oh, I love Oscar Wilde. My favorite's the importance of being earnest, though. I you think. know, I should. And, and Colin Firth is in that one, and I should totally watch it. But oh, you know, you have to. <laughs> it was like Kristen. You had Clueless in with your Jane Austen rotation without yes. knowing it was a Jane Austen funny? adaptation. Isn't that crazy? And then one day I was had watched them back to back one week, and I was like, you know what? How funny is it that I like two movies? that involve like a matchmaker. Oh, and then I started so thinking, oh yeah, you know, they both have best friends like Miss Taylor and, you know, oh yeah. And they both try to make a project out of this girl. And then when I realized Elton, <laughs> the name was Elton, I was like, no, this is just too coincidental. And then I looked into it and I realized, and I felt so dumb. I was like, obviously it's an adaptation, um, you know, and I just wasn't, you just don't think of it because it's not branded Austin. That is um, so funny. That is, You know, if there's a misdirection where it's all about, you know, LA and rich, you know, like the, you know, contempo, uh, contempo casual, as they say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but anyway, so you were clearly fascinated, Tash, about, um, you know, what's going on with Clueless. And so you actually got into the scholarship in it. Yeah. It, the first time I watched it, I wasn't overly keen. Um, I think because <laughs> I, I was only, I was born in the 90s. So my twin oh, sister and I, <laughs> it wasn't something that I saw as particularly relevant. My twin sister loved it and made me watch it. And I just thought that it was another one of her crappy rom-com films. And I thought, this is such a bad representation of women. And I was super critical. And I hadn't even been introduced to Austin at that point. And it was only afterwards that I realized what satire was. (laughs) (laughs) So you got into Austin first? Or was Clueless sort of the gateway? or, Or when did you start reading Austin? Well, I think I I have a very distinct memory in high school of thinking I I want to start exploring female writers because I've always been a very big reader ever since I was little. And one of my English teachers set a task of a monologue, a dramatic monologue. And being cripplingly shy, I didn't want to do it, but she pushed and pushed and I came across Lizzie's monologue in Pride and Prejudice when she realises... you know, to this moment, I never knew myself. And I performed that. And I just remember thinking, this is so engaging. And wondering suddenly, you know, who is Jane Austen? What else did she write? And the floodgates just opened and I've been obsessed ever since. (laughs) Yeah. And so you were into the adaptations, uh, I mean, the the period adaptations, the movies as well, or was it all about, about the text at first? Um, no, I, I did watch the movie adaptations. I actually watched the 2007 Pride and Prejudice first mm. and I wasn't keen. I, yeah. Because well, yeah. I, just, I didn't picture Lizzie like that and I thought Matthew McFadden was great as Darcy actually but then I watched the 1994 seven or so hour, I don't remember how many hours <laughs> <I remember. laughs> and, um and I remember it was just, that is the Lizzie. Like, no one else can be Lizzie. And now I think I've watched just about every Austen adaptation and 
um, annoyingly analyze them all as I'm watching with my friends. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, they probably like it. Um, we can hope so. <laughs> They're just pretending to be irritated. They really. Yeah, I'm going to break in here and say all my friends love it when I analyze Austin adaptations, and then I realize I've driven away all friends that don't love it when I. <laughs> I like it clearly. And oh, clearly. You just know the ones who don't like it are the ones who don't listen to the podcast. Oh, oh wait. Yeah. It's, <laughs> like the it's like evolution, really. <laughs> um, so w- when you had the conversation with your, uh, I don't know, a professor or advisor that you wanted to actually write uh, a thesis or a sort of thesis you had mentioned about mm-hmm. Clueless as an adaptation, how did that conversation go? Um, she actually warned me against it. Um, really? Yeah. So it was, she thought because it was on the New South Wales syllabus, she was a little bit concerned that it wasn't really original. So I had to really dig around to cover topics to actually sort of pull out a bit more of a controversial view of some topics, um, just so that it was different from all the research that's already been done on it. And I think when I first saw it, I thought that it was really original that I'd decided to compare the two, but um, I didn't realise just how many academics had pulled it apart before that. But I, I went with my gut and I pushed on and I did the other adaptations. I compared it with the Gwyneth Paltrow version and um, it turned out for the best, I think. Well, I passed. Good for you. And good for you for sticking with what you wanted to. Now, is it published? I mean, can I, can I get a copy of it? Oh, no, not published because it okay. was, um, <laughs> no, it's not that good. Copy <laughs> to us? I can certainly try and find it. It was from a little while now. <laughs> Is it double-spaced in courier font and it has to have so many words? Oh, yeah, and I've got my APA referencing and all that. Oh, my God, yeah. So, my yeah. God, you guys know I, I miss a lot about um, being in school and university, but I certainly don't miss... Oh, no. Well, I've been at uni now for six years and I'm still going and I'm wondering if I'm just stuck here. I don't think I'm going to be getting out anytime soon. (laughs) You're getting a master's in literature? Yeah. So at the moment I'm doing my master's in gifted education because I have a Bachelor of English Literature and a Bachelor of Education. Right now I'm writing my thesis on bibliotherapy, so a bit oh more God, often. That's so that. fascinating. Such a fascinating subject as an as an academic librarian, you know, you start to get um well anyway, sorry, this is the digression. Maggie, were you saying something? Um I just said that Tash will become an internet podcast star, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. Oh, just, okay. <laughs> I mean, we can tell you that's the life. I mean, there's just you know, cash cow podcast. <laughs> I mean that's the, the loss money. the loss of privacy from the fame. <laughs> no, it's a challenge, I'm not gonna lie. So um you were kind enough to send an outline um, of the things, the sort of the major points that you wanted to hit. Do you just want to dive into it and sort of take us through what you were, you'd like to discuss here? Yeah, sure. So I think I, I took a long time preparing for the podcast because I really wanted to cover different points than I did in my previous research. So I think I was rather critical in the past of Clueless. I didn't actually really see it as such a valuable adaptation of the original novel, but I think my my view has slowly changed without me even realising it. I think when it comes to a comparison with other adaptations, it's, it's really interesting to see 
where Austin fans sort of place that value. Hmm. In your experience, where do they place it? Is it fidelity to plot points? Like, can you map, you know, like, and I know you can map a lot of the plot points. Do you, do you find that is where the value is? Oh, most definitely. And I think, unfortunately, it's a trap that so many Austin fans do fall into because we're so, so passionate about the original. And so we've got a scale from 1 to 10, and 10 is the 1994 Pride and Prejudice that tries to include every single detail. Mm-hmm. And then the more a adaptation deviates from the original, the less we value it. Mm. And I read up on a guy called Jeffrey Wagner, I think, and he was outlining the different types of adaptation. And he spoke about one type as being a significant and deliberate departure from the original piece, but with the intention of making a new work of art. And I think that really hit me and I realised that Clueless isn't actually trying to be a faithful adaptation in that sense. It's not trying to mimic every single part of it because it is so far removed in context, in purpose, yet somehow they're so connected in those core values. It's really fascinating. If I were to to give my um, sort of impression of that, I, I think for me, the main value of Clueless is how well the spirit or how, how well Cher, obviously the main character of Clueless, I assume everybody knows that, how she embodies Emma so well, how all of the, the plot points in Clueless bring out this Emma-ness in her. And it's not totally one-to-one. I mean, there are some things that are different, but um, I just fell in love with it. And I would almost rather see this. I would almost rather see a totally new setting where they channel the the spirit of the book and the spirit of the characters so well versus like Maggie and I just talked about that Mansfield Park ad- adaptation on ITV. And we said time oh, yes. <laughs> they hit every plot point, they had all the lines and it was just flat. And so, and Clueless... Mm-hmm. A, a magical masterpiece. <laughs> like, yeah. I totally love. agree, though. I think that why Clueless is successful and people still enjoy it is because the main character is basically the same person. Mm. Yeah. And we talked mm. about that all the time on the podcast, how that's why Jane Austen is so brilliant is because we know these people, even yeah. though it was almost, you know, more than 200 years ago. So, but Tash, um, did you want to talk about sort of Amy Herkerling and how Clueless came into being and, and anything interesting that you found from that angle? Cause actually a lot of people who listen to the podcast might not know who Amy Herkerling is. I actually did a fair amount of watching YouTube videos of her before um, before we came on the podcast. And I think it's fascinating to hear her talk about why she wanted to do this and, and what she had envisioned. Yeah, well, um, I can't say my knowledge of that is exactly extensive, but it, it is really interesting because she's not the sort of person you would expect, I think, especially when I first saw her interviewed. Because when I started reading all of this highbrow academic analysis of this adaptation then you get this fun cheeky movie that (laughs) it's it's crazy that you can get just so much scholarship from it and I think you get this really interesting mix because on a surface level Clueless is well it's a chick flick it's not really seen as important or necessarily highbrow and it's it's really interesting because we get a lot of references to its process of adaptation um, in a classical sense throughout the whole movie. 
you, you get this sort of mashup, and so many scenes point towards this almost collage of classic literary culture and paraphrasing. For instance, I, I love the scene where Cher writes the note to Miss Geist, quoting <laughs> this sonnet. And even though um, the lines she puts together are from different stanzas, so she's paraphrasing, she's re-quoting it, she's putting it into her own context. And then Dion says, did you write that? And Cher says, duh, it's like a famous quote from notes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in what you were saying about the process of adaptation just a minute ago mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and what exactly you meant by that. Well, I think the process of adaptation is Amy Heckling has taken the plot points of, of Emma and she's very discreetly picked which scenes are going to best represent new values and new purpose. She's pointing in this ironic way towards adaptation by saying all of this classic literature can still be relevant. We can see that in also the scene where they're in the car when Josh and his girlfriend comes and picks her up after Elton's driven off. Yes. And she, I think it's Josh's girlfriend's going on about all this highbrow sort of hipster talk about literature and to thine own self be true, quoting Hamlet. And Cher says, no, Hamlet didn't say that. I remember Mel Gibson accurately, that Polonius guy did. (laughs) choosing to adapt not just Jane Austen and Emma she's adapting all these literary references to show how it's still relevant today and to show how it's still accessible right like um you know well like Maggie was saying it's it's you bringing bringing in these timeless sort of things Mm. Um, and how something that is the prose may be dense and difficult for modern readers to understand if they're just sitting at home reading it, if Mel Gibson is in a film and people are saying it, you can still, as a consumer of the movie or literature, you still understand the meaning behind it. Yeah, and it's reflecting that mass market impulse to re-enrange all of these, like, canonical texts and authors because it's what we want to do in modern times. We want to make these classics still relevant so many, many adaptations miss that mark where they're just not quite translated effectively into a modern context. I think that's a, a fantastic point, too, in that when you do look at Clueless, you're, all, you're very satisfied with the plot points that do line up. But then it's fascinating to take a look at the ones that she actually did drop. And mm. obviously, you know, she, she couldn't have... Uh, Christian, the Frank Churchill character, secretly engaged to another woman. That wouldn't make sense. So she had a modern solution to that problem that still wound up the same for Emma slash Cher in that she was clueless about his affections and where they were likely to be directed. And she did, um, and this is getting maybe more into specifics than you wanted to go right now, but I have always been fascinated that Amy Heckerling dropped the Jane Fairfax character entirely. So we really, we do have a nemesis for Cher, but she's really more of an Augusta Hawkins, right? Amber, Ambular, right? She's yeah. really more of a sort of a gauche, we're going to Melrose, you know, like yeah. <laughs> um, a sort of a gauche tacky fashion victim, right? Um, going through Cher's mm-hmm. laundry, as they say, and buying her clothes. Um, but she's not really the perfect girl that everybody loves that Cher finds obnoxious. And honestly, I mean, 
yeah, this is me monologuing now, but I, I, I've said on the podcast before, like Emma's very hard to like. And I think that that characteristic of Emma sort of being mean to like the deeply good girl and everybody's like, she's such a good girl. She's so great. Mm-hmm. Maybe is just off putting to me, whereas Cher doesn't have that storyline. And so she's less sort of devious than Emma in that sense. She's less sort of cruel than Emma. I actually love Cher and can really get far more invested in that character than I can in Emma. And, you know, Cher doesn't have the moment where she insults a Miss Bates-like character either. Actually, that's transferred on to time. Yeah. 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 Oh, go ahead. I I think what's really interesting about that is Amy Heckling does – have that scene and I didn't even notice it until this last time and it was when she mistakes Lucy her maid her nationality for Mexican oh yeah oh my god yeah I didn't even pick it up I it just it hit me it was crazy and the way um Josh corrects her and says you know it's you're wrong. And she says, oh, yes, it's always my fault, isn't it? And I thought that was such a great translation of that dynamic between Emma and Knightley with him being more worldly and having to sort of reflect that and educate her because she doesn't get what's going on. She is a bit clueless. But I think the main reason they removed that Miss Bates character and Jane Fairfax is because when you adapt it into a modern context, it would be difficult for modern audiences, especially modern females, to relate to Jane. Because I think if we looked at a modern transformation of Jane Fairfax, she'd be um, the good little Anglican girl that goes to church and she's very quiet and always getting a cold and all of that. And I think they would be criticised a little bit there. I also think that you have to drop characters and some plots almost always when you're adapting from book to screen. Mm. Because film is just a different storytelling medium. When you have all of these characters and uh, the secret engagement and things like that, it just becomes too much. Christian occupies maybe like 12 minutes of total screen time in this movie because it's Mm. only one hour and 37 minutes long. And so if you just try to include all of this, it's just too much. Yeah, yeah, well, and to be, yeah. to be fair, uh, the Douglas McGrath, the Gwyneth Paltrow version, they also ba- basically had to drop a large portion of that Jane Fairfax, Frank Churchill story. I mean, we don't even yeah. see Jane Fairfax again once we realize that that they've been engaged and Emma never repents, you know, about sort of bullying her. Um, oh, I hate that. I hate <laughs> that so much. <laughs> you, you hate that she doesn't have to repent? I just, I wasn't too keen on the Gwyneth Paltrow adaptation full stop, Mm -hmm. to be honest. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that it's like going back to what I was saying about fidelity to the text and how I I have been in the past very narrow-minded in that respect. Unfortunately, I think the Gwyneth Paltrow version is judged more harshly because it's too similar to the original. So Mm. it's compared a lot more closely. It's set in the same context and... Um, they're trying to bring in these modern values into a Regency setting and it can almost clash a little bit, whereas because Clueless is so different, we don't judge it as harshly because it's a different piece of art. I think that um, Cher and Josh are a little bit more organic of a couple than Emma and Knightley, and when they banter, 
they're, they hold their own against each other, which Emma and Knightley do, which is delightful to see in both versions. But in Clueless, they're both actually young. I mean, Josh is young too. And she, she lands some punches. I mean, she's like freshman psych rears its ugly head, you know, they, they don't have the same type of relationship at the beginning of the film that Knightley and Emma do because they're not particularly close. Yeah, right. No, they were no. stepbrother and stepsister for a hot minute, but they, I wouldn't say they are friends at the beginning of the film. Right. So you can't really blame him for being hard on her when she comes after him as well, you know, and they just have this sort of sibling relationship where, whereas Knightley and even, even in the book, I mean, but even in the Gwyneth Paltrow adaptation, when, when Knightley sort of rebukes Emma by grabbing her arm and saying, you know, Miss Bates is poor, even more so than when she was born. It's super, almost violent. I mean, he really grabs her arm. She, he, he whirls yeah. her around. He's the grown-up. She's the child. He's lecturing her. And we not, we're not sure how we really feel about that. We're not sure. And then we realize, well, he secretly loves her. So then we understand his, his passion about her behavior, whatever. But... um Josh doesn't really have the same opportunity to like super harshly rebuke, except for, as you pointed out, uh, the Lucy scene, which I'm so like just mad at myself that I never (laughs) caught that. It's so perfect. And that really is the moment where, where Cher doesn't, doesn't really shine, you know, and he has that, has that good point, but he doesn't get super aggressively angry. He, he has that sort of laid back Josh, you know, lecturing sort of vibe but he it's not the same parenting sort of thing that Knightley is doing yeah Um, he's almost more of a brother figure as opposed to Mr Knightley being a bit more of a father figure yeah yeah and I think it I did find it a bit off-putting when I first watched Clueless because I didn't know what was happening and they had such a brother sister dynamic that it it kind (laughs) of hit me when I thought oh no they're they're gonna end up together and (laughs) I, I turned to my sister. I'm like, no, surely not. <laughs> and yeah, the, I, have, I have a question about that. So let me poll the ladies. Cher and Josh, squicky or no? I actually had a friend who thought that Josh and Cher were half brother, half sister. And they came out of the theater so horrified, not having caught the oh, line. You oh, were barely even married days. to his mother. And that was five years ago. So at least I wasn't that bad. But, you know, they try, they try, and it's hard in Emma too, but they try to inject a little bit of that feeling. And it's when Cher comes down in the Calvin Klein dress and she's not wearing anything. And and Josh says to Mel, you're going to let her go out like that? And you see him look at her. And that's when you, that's when I got on board. I mean, maybe not everybody got got on board there, um, but they tried. They tried, and I think they were fairly effective and, and clueless. And then, in the Gwyneth Paltrow, Emma, they just flat out said it. Like Jeremy Northam's like, no, indeed we are not. And you're like, Oh my God, I didn't see this <laughs> up until that point. I truly did not, had not seen it coming at all. Even when he dances oh, with Harriet, Harriet Smith, even when he dances with Harriet, you think he's an amazing guy. Oh, he's so great. But you don't think, you don't think Emma should definitely marry him. And then it's, <laughs> and then it's like, um, you know, no, indeed we are not, you know, brother and sister. Have and then that sits with you and you're like, hey, wait a minute. Are they going to be romantically involved? Yeah. Have you said this before, Kristen? Yeah, I think so. Because I'm still, if you did, I'm still just as shocked. How can you not know where that movie's going? Well, I saw it when I was like, I don't know, 14 maybe. I was an idiot. I was a child. I, I was not perceptive about plot 
you know, machinations and filmmaking. And But, you know, if I saw it today, I probably would have had an inkling. I, well, even if I didn't know Emma. <laughs> Okay, but I didn't mean, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to derail you, uh, Tash, because you had some other points you wanted to talk about. Um, Oh, no, not at all. The the dynamic between um, Josh and Cher is really interesting. And it wasn't until I saw the scene where they're watching TV on the couch and she's brushing her hair that I was like, oh, no, that they have a great friendship. It's not just bickering. And it, it is funny because it does reflect that sort of, um, relationship that Knightley and Emma have in that Knightley is grown up, he's uh, worldly, he's experienced, and they do this through the scenes with the cartoons and the news. Yes. Where she's wanting to watch, I think, is it called Ren and Stimpy? Yes. It, is yeah. it called, excuse me, no, is no, it called no. Ren and Stimpy? I'm going to die. I'm going to oh, crumble no. into infinity dust right now. <laughs> I'm so Christine, sorry. Are you a big Ren and Stimpy fan? No, I just, I'm having an old moment. I'm sorry. I do really do. Please continue. I'm over it. <laughs> okay, but you were only oh, you were 14 when Emma came out. I was even older. Oh, I'm when sorry. Oh, you're so old and wise watching yeah, no, Emma for the first since, time. Oh, aren't you smart? Your birthday. As, since my birthday's in April, as a wiser, older lady. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's in April. So let me just tell you with someone who's older. <laughs> oh, I love it. And and with Knightley, like you do get that sort of sense of he's a little bit um patronizing. And it it turns you off a little bit, but yes. the way he, he wants to watch the news and like the scene where he's next to the pool and he's wearing oh. all black and the sun yeah. glass. <laughs> he's reading Nietzsche. Yeah. And yeah. Um, oh my god. Yeah, it's almost kind of like proto-hipster. It's great. Mm-hmm. I love it. Mm-hmm. I, I actually did read a really good comment online once about the whole cartoons versus the news and that sort of highbrow, important, worldly text and then, you know, the flippant cartoon that's seen as sort of less valuable. And they thought that that was a little bit of a nod towards the emergence of the novel in Regency times, mm. it was looked down on. It was a female sort of kind of like trashy fan fiction nowadays. Yeah. It's not nearly as serious or important. It's not informing your mind and all of that. And it, it really is almost showing that Cher is sort of bringing out that playfulness in Josh and sort of encouraging him to not take himself so seriously. Yeah. I just, I dig that. I really dig that. Um, I don't know. Why am I talking like I'm from the 60s? I am into that point. That is fascinating. Um, no, but, but yeah, yeah, sorry to, to derail you. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. Please continue. I don't really know where I was going, to be honest. <laughs> we're going to talk about, you're going to talk about like gender. I think maybe you were segueing oh. into your sort of gender and sexuality sort of. Okay, are you ready? It's I'm, I'm a lot ready. Of on this. Oh my gosh! Okay, hit us. So, it's a little bit controversial, and I've had a fight with my sister-in-law about this. I actually wow. think that uh, a friendly fight, of course. <laughs> I I think that it came up as a question: who is more of a feminist character, Cher or Emma, and which one shows more agency? as a female, and I actually think it's Emma. Oh, I agree. I think that she is such a better representation of female agency. 
And she's so controversial, even in respect to um, Austen's other heroines. Yet it's funny because when we think about, you know, the outspoken, empowered woman, we go straight to Lizzie Bennet. But Emma is even above that because she challenges that patriarchy by stating that she has absolutely no desire to have a man dictate her life. She cares for her father, but he's not the head of the household. She is. Mm-hmm. It's almost like he depends on her. She depends on no one. And I, when I first read Emma, it hit me, that last scene where he agrees to move in with them. Yes. That is huge. It was unheard of in Regency times. Like he, he basically said, no, that's fine. I'm giving up my male world to come in here and make you happy. And that's huge. Mm-hmm. And, and it really would have shocked Regency audiences as well. And they probably would have seen it as quite fantastical, like, oh, yeah, that's cute fairy tale sort of thing. But that would never happen. But it was a huge gender comment that she was making. And one of the things I really picked up over the past few weeks as I've been watching it was this idea of mobility and female mobility as being a representation of female empowerment. Because we see that Emma is confined to this small village community of Highbury and she hasn't travelled outside of it. She's... um, She's confined and it's a very static novel when you look at Emma as a whole. It's not really plot-driven. We don't get lots of settings that we're jumping in between. It's very much all based around the drama of the social interactions within this secular community. And Knightley makes a big point of not being restricted in mobility. He walks and he rides everywhere. He's the picture of a healthy young man who has nothing to tie him down yet he gives all this freedom up for Emma and her father and when we see her sister Isabella Knightley and they speak about her going to London and traveling with her children and her husband in a way you could see her as more empowered because she can move around where Emma can't but she can only do that because of her husband um Miss Knightley's brother But the incredible thing about Emma is that she refuses to rely on a husband to enrich her life in that way. Yes. And I think that Emma, um, Amy Heckling, actually picks up on this. And obviously, being an English teacher, I'm probably reading way too far into it. But that line where um, Ty gets into a fight with Cher and she says, why should I listen to you? You're a virgin who can't (laughs) drive. And uh, the girls thought that was hilarious and it it is funny, but it's picking up again on that sense of mobility. She doesn't have that sense of independence where she can control her own movement within society, not just physically but socially in a way. I I just thought that was quite interesting. I don't know whether Amy Heckling was picking up on that, the way she is restricted by her father, but... Uh it's so yeah. fascinating that the fact that you brought that driving is brought into it. And, and I had never thought that realized that before, but you're so right that he, George <laughs> Knightley is walking and going everywhere. And so is Isabella. They talk about going to the mm-hmm. sea and that, as you said, that mobility and it, driving is the uh, big point of, you know, share what's going on. She's so much of it is like, Oh, she has to have Josh drive around with her or whatever. Yeah. Um, and she has to call him to come and save her. 
He's a virgin who can't drive is exactly who Emma is too. I love it. I love Mm -hmm. it. Oh my God. I also agree with Tasha's point that Emma, um, I think in the outline you said, you know, how do these two characters navigate and maneuver in the patriarchy? Mm. I do agree with Tash that Emma actually displays more agency within the world she lives in than Cher. Cher is always... Mm -hmm arguing and convincing and cajoling and whining and asking and, but she's doing it to convince. She doesn't do, she can't do these things on her own. She has to convince people to give her what she wants. Yeah. Yeah. And I think on a surface level, when we look at Cher as a female character, she seems to adhere to the gender stereotypes more than Emma does in that it's very appearance-based. And I think Amy Heckling is making a very um, deliberate comment and criticism of that society, of that sort of superficial discourse, because, like, when she gets held up at the gunpoint and she says, oh, no, I can't get down on the ground, this isn't a liar. (laughs) And I think at one point Josh calls her a superficial space cadet. (laughs) That was such a great... That was such a great summation of the way he sees her. But she's so much more than that. And I think we can see Clueless as still a very feminist text in that it's a movie that is very much aimed at a female audience. Yeah, and not only that, but like when you look when you look at Cher and who she is and what she does, she doesn't only take care of her father's health, which is a cute nod to Mr. Woodhouse being a hypochondriac in, in mm-hmm. Emma. But she's always doing things like, oh, Lucy, the brush needs clearing out. You know, the fire department's going to get after us, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or, um, oh, God, I hit a whole list of things that she does as sort of um, – to run the household. Cher is actually running her household and she's running her life and she's doing it really efficiently. Like fashion and makeup and lighting concepts and whatever, it, that's all really hard stuff to do. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And she is very powerful. And the other thing I noted too, and this is a tiny little point, but uh, oh, oh, but as you said, as you said, Maggie, she also uses her period to as a wheel to, to you know against um, Mr. Hall saying Mr. Hall it was surfing the crimson tide I had to haul ass to the ladies and he's like I <laughs> yeah. assume you're referring to women's troubles so she takes that femininity and brings that to sort of wields that as well but one thing I I, I saw in my recent rewatch that I thought was so funny is when Murray uh, when they're at the party at the valley and Murray has his friend shave his head or start to shave his head <laughs> oh, and God. Dion is losing her crap and is like, what am I going to tell my grandchildren? And then she called, she's like, I'm calling your mother. And he's like, no, 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 call my mom. You know, so it's like they have, it's referencing women having a lot of their own power in their own way in their own certain domains. But I mean, I would agree with you that she is very subservient to her father I mean, mm. always, always pacing by his, uh, you know, study, and he's like, "Shay, get in here," you know, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, um, and trying to work within, trying to sort of work within her father's rules, and that's his world, that's his domain. It's very mm-hmm. scary litigator. I have a question related to what Kristen was just saying. Mm-hmm. Do we ever see Cher's dad standing up? Well, I so this was one of the things that I found really fascinating was the way Amy Heckling adapted Mr. Woodhouse because 
when we look at all the characters, they're pretty close to the originals that Jane Austen wrote, but his character is without a doubt the most deviated from the original. You get this huge contrast between the hypochondriac and then this lawyer who's all about manipulation and strength and masculinity. I guess he's a workaholic. Yeah, and um, one of the funny comparisons I thought of was the way he keeps trying to eat, like, burgers and junk food and (laughs) cholesterol. And meanwhile, Mr Woodhouse is going on about his um, thin gruel that's the right (laughs) consistency. And it's, it's interesting because Cher almost plays a bit of a maternal role the way she yeah. sort of wags him a little bit and says, you need your vitamin C, whereas Emma plays a bit more of a carer role where Mr Woodhouse looks to his daughter for comfort. It's not just for that sort of physical maternal care. They have this relationship that seems a lot deeper than that. And it's it's funny because it almost, I, I would say that Emma's most redeeming factor and feature in Jane Austen's novel is that she loves her father. She Mm -hmm. has so much familial devotion and she is so patient with him. Mm -hmm. Even when we as readers are reading along and we're thinking, okay, come on, hurry up, just just stop talking, she never once, not even once, loses her temper with him or gets frustrated. No, she has to manage him all the time, has to manage him and protect him from John Knightley and, Mm -hmm. you know, George Knightley, Mr. Knightley, as they are managing him too. And they they both sort of come together to manage him and his comfort. And I think there's even one passage where she's thinking about marrying Mr. Knightley and leaving her father and then says she even wept over it as a a sin of thought, which really just melts your heart towards, towards Emma in that moment too. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that um, in Clueless they decided to cut that sort of redemptive characteristic. I think we don't see as much of a character growth in Cher, obviously because it's in film. It's We don't have time to to have those sort of events that we see in Emma. It's It's a bit more comical. I think the purpose is a little bit more ironic in that sense. And like what you said before, by taking away the huge plot point of when Emma slights Miss Bates, it's interesting that that isn't a big plot point because that is the point in the novel where we dislike Emma Mm -hmm. and we think, how could she say that to poor Miss Bates? Yet that event in the novel is also her most redemptive, transformative phase is the way she reacts afterwards. So by cutting that, we see a very different transformation arc with Cher. And even though Cher is very superficial in that sense, she really does change by the end of the novel. She starts off as the superficial space cadet or the dits for the credit card, but by the end she's so much more. And she wants to do a makeover of the soul, right? She she yeah. has that. That's after the fight with Ty, I think it is, where she's like, yeah. I need to make over yeah. my soul. And that's when she volunteers to be the captain of the Pismo Beach Disaster Relief Squad and gives them her skis. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, in, in that, what I actually found to be the moment where Cher has changed the most is not just her volunteering and doing all that stuff, but when she talks to Travis, Yes. 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 She's just like really nice and pleasant and and she goes goes to his skateboarding competition where normally she would have totally blown him off and been dismissive 
Yes. Oh, um, skateboarding is so five years ago, I think is what she says to Ty. But you know, Ty insults Travis. I, I, I saw this oh, as, yeah. I yeah. saw this as transferring the Miss Bates moment onto Ty. So Ty is, becomes popular. She's, oh. you know, and Travis comes up to her and she's like, excuse me, don't the Lodis hang over out over there. Mm-hmm. And you can see Alicia Silverstone's face, Cher's face is just. Oh kind my of goodness. She learned that. Like, where did you learn that? I, I created from- a monster. Both Emma yeah, and yeah. Cher. Yeah. Both Emma and Cher have this moment where they're like, I created a monster. <laughs> they're yeah. tied. It's funny what you were saying about how the comment of, I can't talk to him. I don't speak Mexican. As being that, because I did react viscerally to that watching. Oh yeah, it now, and I'm not sure if it was supposed to have as big an impact because kind of the times we're living in. Another yeah. moment was when she uses the R word. Oh yeah, that that would not fly today. But back then it was different. That, it was- yeah, that was just the vernacular, right? But when she said that, I also had this. Visceral, yes. Like, so did I. Tasteful. Yes. Pullback. Is that when she says that? She, um, oh God, who is she talking to, Chris? She's talking to Mr. Hall, and she's she's trying to explain, oh, I took my dad's sucky Italian roast. Do you want this coffee? Because oh, she the trick about the coffee, right? Yes. And I'm another time a, she just uh, says, you know, she drops the first syllable and just says tarred. But, yeah, it's both times it's yeah. very jarring. But we, we've totally moved past that that word. So, yeah, I, I don't think it was meant to, to – for us, it's time to think, oh, she's a horrible person. Yeah, but okay. now you're like, oh, my God, that's not good. As a 2018 viewer, yeah, um, that like we're talking about the you know we talk about the evolution of language and things like that. That is a perfect example of how something like that, which would have just been teenagers talking, now it's you know pretty horrifying. Yeah, and it's it's picking up on that 90s slang. I think it's very much a contextual nod, mm-hmm. and I I do find that by the end of it, I do genuinely like share. Me too. And it's interesting the way the producers use costume to show her transformation. And they really make use of that visual dimension that we don't get in a novel. And you see Cher's clothing change hugely. And by the end, when she's coming more into herself, she starts wearing jeans and um, runners. At, oh, I suppose, um, I think you call them sneakers. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> Sorry, we call them runners. Um, and she starts to focus less on her appearance and more on her personality and her own personal internal growth. And I thought that was very interesting because she's isolated for quite a bit of the movie. And going back to that quote, you're a virgin who can't drive, we see that value of mobility, but we also see this value of sexuality. And I think that's one of the most interesting factors that heckling has adapted Because in the Regency town, marriage is the driving interest. It's all about getting married. You know, the the novel starts that way with a wedding. And Cher, sorry, Emma, (laughs) Emma loses her friend, Mrs. Weston, because of this marriage. She feels isolated because she's a single woman. And you see Cher is isolated because she is a virgin. So Amy Heckling replaces the theme of marriage with sexuality and you see that scene at the end when um ties had her brush with death and beyond <laughs> interrupts and asks her for sex advice and it's so cringy but you realize that Cher can't participate in that discourse 
because she is single and she is isolated from that teenage value of not being a virgin. And you get this this sense that she's not just going to give that away. And I think that that is such an empowering moment to share where she says, you as if, like you get that line, as if, mm-hmm. when she's not just going to let these guys come on to her because she's waiting for something better. And I think that there is such an empowerment through that. I actually came across, I think I mentioned it earlier, Reader I Married Him by Patricia Beer. Yeah. And I obviously, I hope she doesn't ever listen to this, but I really disagree with her and her idea of feminism in Emma. And she, I think she she makes this one line that really rubbed me the wrong way. She refers to... Jane Austen's heroines as a Miss World contest Mm. and, you know, only men want pretty wives. But I think this is so wrong on so many levels. And she uses Emma as sort of like that prototype of, oh, yeah, she's pretty, she's shallow, but I actually don't think Emma values her appearance in the novel at all. No, it actually says that. Knightley says, you know, Knightley's talking to um, Miss Taylor and says she is not personally vain. They talk about how beautiful she is, and he actually comes out and says that is one of her strengths is she's not personally vain. So I completely Mm -hmm. agree with you. Anyway, please continue. Sorry. I think that in the novel, Emma's beauty is more kind of like her wealth, where it's just sort of her privilege that she naturally has, and so she doesn't have to think about it. Whereas yeah, women yeah. Or not would have to obsess about it and try to all be constantly looking good. Emma can just, you know, hashtag woke up like this. Yeah, uh, yeah. And just go about her life, and but she's beautiful and she's rich, and that's who she is. Yeah, and I, I also love that line by Mr. Knightley and my husband. He's kind of like if Mr. Knightley and Mr. Tilney had a love child. That's him. <laughs> and so oh when. <laughs> And when Mr. Knightley says, men of sense do not want silly wives, he looked at me and he's like, yeah, we don't. (laughs) (laughs) But Emma doesn't put herself forward to catch his eye. She is just unashamedly herself and she has that retort. And I I just, I love Emma as character. Sorry, that was a bit of a side tangent, but... um, (laughs) Do you think that the change of that with Cher, who is, you know, pretty obsessed with her appearance, how many hours a day do you spend grooming yourself? Yes. Yeah. I see that just more as Amy Hatterling's, like, this is the point she's trying to make of kind of what we were saying about that appearance-based society. And whereas Emma doesn't have to value herself that way, Cher has to. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree completely. And I think that Amy Heckling, she's poking fun at Cher, but she's not criticizing her. I think she is a bit tongue-in-cheek laughing at Cher, the way Austen does with her characters all the time. But it's actually the society that she's criticizing. And you see, like, all the girls walking around with the strips from the nose job. Oh, yes. That part was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's so funny. all have nose jobs and chin jobs. And it was just, like, in the background, kind of, but it makes such a statement. Yeah, and I think she she's criticizing that superficiality of the high school. And I think obviously it's exaggerated, but it's it's a similar setting to Highbury in that sense where it is these superficial values that they're pushing on to them. And going back to the sexuality theme, in that scene where they're on the highway 
and um, there's the big freak out and um, oh my gosh, boyfriend <laughs> helps her pull off the highway and, um, and and at that point she explains that Dion is no longer a virgin. Dion's virginity and goes from a technicality to a... Non-existent. Yeah, non-existent. non-existent. Yeah. And we, we get this separation. Suddenly Cher is not seen with Dion nearly as much. And you see that moment where Dion and Ty are chatting about sex and Cher can't participate in that. And I think that that is a nod towards the original plot in that Mrs. Weston is lost to Emma when she gets married. Mm. She can't participate in that world because she's a single woman and she's not interested in getting married. And then Cher loses her friend Dion because she loses her virginity. So she's separated again from that world. And I think that that is a very big gender criticism that Amy Heckling is making, which is really interesting. That is really interesting. I hadn't caught that. Um, I did, I, I would like to ask, that kind of dovetails into something I wanted to ask you, Tash, where Bay and I were talking and he was saying, you know, well, is Mrs. Geitz kind of a sub in for Miss Taylor slash Mrs. Weston, where it's kind of her first successful pairing. And mm-hmm. Emma begins with that wedding, but Clueless ends with that wedding. Do you think that's just a function of the storytelling and the different mediums where we have to see Cher doing the matchmaking? Or do you think that there's something bigger going on there? Uh, That's a really good question. And I think one of the things when we see Emma matchmaking for Mrs. Weston, her purpose is that she wants to see her friend happy. And Cher's matchmaking for her teacher is for personal gain. Yes, 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 yes. So I think that's an interesting comment, but Amy Heckling sort of merges several characters. I would actually argue that Miss Geist is almost a little bit of a Miss Bates character, the way she sort of prattles on a little bit. So I would say they've used that as a plot device because they still want to have the essence of Miss Bates and Miss Taylor, but at the same time they can't make them distinct separate characters because there isn't the time. And by ending on the marriage... I think it is almost a little bit of a nod towards the way Emma ends in marriage in that we get Knightley and Emma are going to get married and Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax are going to get married. It's it's almost a little bit ironic the way she says, and I you can guess what happened next, and then it shows the wedding and she says, <laughs> I'm only 16. And it's I think that Amy Heckling uses that as a little bit of a cheeky point towards the way Austin and in the Regency context, mm-hmm. young girls did get married. Right. Um, yeah, I, I but I have to ask too, is um, for an, to an Australian audience, is the comment about California versus Kentucky opaque or have you ever heard of Kentucky before? <laughs> well, we've got Kentucky fried chicken. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, God. <laughs> but to be honest, I, I'm not overly sure. <laughs> yeah, it's a state in the union where there aren't a lot of wealthy people, and then people. The stereotype is that people marry young. I don't know, but I was oh, like, okay. yeah, <laughs> more like a country, very type country, of not as um, urban. But I just wanted to point out that I think ending on a wedding is also a very classic, like comedy, yes, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, like even a, a Broadway 
or a musical comedy kind of way to end your story. Mm-hmm. Like a yeah, natural, yeah. when you're dealing with a comedy, it's a natural ending point. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose that's that's the other way that um, because obviously in this modern context in the 90s, these kids aren't going to be getting married. And, <laughs> they go to the prom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, and it's replaced with sexuality instead. And I think that that was a really interesting choice because she's commenting on a different sort of um, interest because in the village of Highbury, as I said, like marriage is the main topic of gossip, whereas in a high school it's not going to be marriage. And I suppose, uh, well, I can't talk. I got married young, so <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I am not getting married young. <laughs> they did end with a very adult kiss, though, didn't they? I mean, and she is just that. 16, but he has to be, what, 19 at least, because I kind of wonder about that, actually. I mean, there's sort of like a, you know, yeah, minor trying to be a lawyer. Is he just a freshman in college? You can I mean, he's not in law school yet, but. I always assumed he was like 20. Yeah, he's, he's pretty little, old for Cher. He's yeah. a little squicky, right? Yeah, but men do take a lot longer to mature. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see, okay, Sorry, I husband. <laughs> movie where it's about um, Josh's personal growth and his makeover of his soul where he has the revelation and is deserving of Cher. Well, okay, let me make this point, though. Let me make this one point. One of the things about um, Emma and Knightley, and it's, it, that it really makes me wince, is how hard he is on her and how... He, um, okay, there's a line in Emma where uh, she's drawing the picture of Harriet Smith, right? And Knightley says, you have made her too tall. And then the next line is, Emma knew that she had, but would not own it. I love that line. <laughs> the reason she won't own it is because Knightley is always on her case, right? And so when Cher comes home and has failed her driving test, and she's like, Josh, spare me the lecture about how driving is important, responsibility, okay? And he's like, I didn't say anything. And she goes, I know what you're thinking. It, oh. in, um, in that minute, and it's not really ever touched on again, but he looks a little bit taken aback or, or sort of sad that – this is a person he considers his friend and he's, he's on her side, but they've had this contentious relationship. And when the, he realizes in that moment, like she doesn't think I'm on her side, that's a lesson for him to sort of have to, you know, take into account too. I always yeah. liked that moment. I actually really like Josh's character. Yeah, me too. And he, he does. I mean, when they're on the staircase and she's he's like go to the mall and she's like you think i'm just a ditz with a credit card and he has to come out and say you know how much he values her it's sort of a humbling moment for him too yeah yeah i love that line um that dion uses to describe him he's going through his post-adolescent idealistic phase or something yeah Oh, when um, he goes and rescues Ty at the dance and he walks up to her and he's got his hands in his pockets and he just says, you know, I believe that as humans we were born to move or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And I do think he's such a funny character. (laughs) He he definitely is. And um, but he does. And one of the the things that make that makes their romance feel real and maybe this is bad, but as like a young woman watching it made me very much root for them to get together is how Cher 
you know, doesn't pull her punches with him. She, she, you know, matches him witticism for witticism. But then when she's on her own, she's thinking about the points he's made. So there's one scene where she's in the car and he's saying, oh, you know, Marky Mark's in a planted tree. You've never contributed anything. And the next scene, Cher is with Dion saying, to, and Cher says, Dion, do you think I'm selfish? And so, and then, you know, she has to talk to her dad, like, oh, I like this boy, but he doesn't like me. And he's one of these do-gooder types. Now I feel like all my after-school commitments are just not good enough, you know, and and it really has imbibed all of his teachings nonetheless. I think that speaks to how deeply invested, emotionally invested she is in the relationship without necessarily admitting it to herself. And that to me is just like catnip. Like, yes, I want this romance to happen. (laughs) Yeah. And you really do end up investing in it. And you value him as a character the way at the end. She she really does change. I think it's so genuine. And I had some students argue that all of the charity work that she did at the end was because of him. But I actually disagree. I think that it's not, well, not because of him, but for him. Because a lot of them were quite critical on Cher as modern young girls, and I was quite surprised. And they they didn't like her at all, but they loved him, and they <laughs> said, "Oh, well, she's changing to attract him." And I I disagree completely. I think yeah, that he's going through her own transformation. Yeah, because I he's not agree. present at any of that. She yeah. doesn't do it where. I mean, she's pulling the stuff in the hall, and he sees it, but it's not like she tells him about it or. Um, he's not at the school. I mean, that all happens as far as she knows without him even knowing about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad we all agree. Yes, we are <laughs> all in perfect agreement. I um, um, Oh, Kristen, I do want to point out the line was, would you say I'm, or would you call me selfish? And Dion goes, oh, not to your face. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a sick word. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Wallace Shawn is such a gem, by the way. Now we're just, now I'm sorry. I'm just injecting my personal like swooniness over the supporting cast. Oh, cause but, so many people in this are famous, right? Oh my God. Wallace Shawn is a gem. He is such a fantastic character. And so is Dan Hedaya, the the dad. And I love the choice that Amy Heckerling made. And I think the dad, the father, you know, Mel Horowitz is yeah. um, one of the bright spots and ca- like helps to carry the movie and their relationship is, just- and you know, I would think with a lot of young girls calling their father daddy at 16 would be pretty obnoxious, but it feels very organic. And I don't yeah. dislike Alicia Silverstone for it at all. I mean, sh- I don't dislike share for it at all. And Alicia Silverstone, the other thing I have to say, has anyone ha- ever had shinier, more perfect hair? No. All I can look at, you know, whenever she's on the screen, I'm obsessed with her hair. She's incredibly beautiful, flawless skin. I'm like, I just, she is just so pretty. All right. She also brings this very natural sweetness to share. Even yes. Even she's like kind of horrible in the beginning. She just always has such a... I don't know. I don't even know. How, I guess she just has a, a sweetness about her. She's in it. She's adorably clueless, as she calls Ty. This girl is such adorable, so adorably clueless. That's what I, I heard that um, they hired Alicia Silverstone to be a share. I think it was Amy Heckerling who went to like a meal with her to talk to her, and rather than picking up her drink to drink from the straw, 
she left the drink on the table and moved her head down to drink from the straw, <laughs> which yeah, like that was just well, so bizarre and adorable. And was like, I loved it. Oh, and she also apparently Lisa Silverstone just thought it was pronounced Hadians. So, oh, it, oh, <laughs> so when she goes to do her oral, you know, like her or debate, this is like we could totally party with the Hadians. And oh. the producers ran to correct her, and Amy Hackerman was like, "No, don't take away the character's confidence." And she like loved the mistake, so they kept it in. But um, I actually wonder about the Sporaticus as well. Oh yeah, going through a two Curtis phase. Yes. <laughs> Well, you know, a lot of people make the point that, you know, others have made the point that Cher, while she is clueless in many ways and, you know, Cliff's notes for the quote, but she does actually have a very large vocabulary, you know, capricious, sporadic, you know, like she says, this is a really good school. You know, she actually is sort of like Emma, uh, clever enough. Like there's there's a scene in Emma where Emma draws up a list of books that she wants to read, right? When she was, I think she did it when she was young and Mr. Knightley talks about how great of a list it was. And then she didn't actually read any of them. And that's mirrored when Emma is a uh, share is trying to get Ty to read men are from Mars or women for from Venus. And she's like, I'm really fit or fat, you know, like <laughs> they're trying to improve themselves and you have to give them props for that as well. Props. <laughs> but oh, the other thing I wanted to say is I actually think that shares um, debates and her, the points she makes in her debates while silly are actually valid points. And I can recite the whole, if the government could just get to the kitchen, rearrange <laughs> some things, we could totally party with the Hadeans. Well, I think and the second debate is a little more effective than the first. The I'm sorry. Into, into her process it, when she does the second debate about um, the violence, violence on, on TV. News. Yeah. Oh, uh, Yeah. <laughs> In conclusion, it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, it was his 50th birthday. All right, I'm sorry. I'm done with the quotes now. That is one of my favorite scenes in TV history. I do love that. And I think, um, again, especially as someone who's taught a lot of girls, one of the biggest problems we have is that girls don't want to Um, express their point of view because they're scared they're going to be wrong and they're always scared that you know what if I say something stupid and I'm judged for it and Cher has this confidence where she gets up and she spouts out all this nonsense yes and she she makes her point (laughs) ridiculous but she makes her point and she doesn't care what they have to say to criticize her she's confident that her opinion matters in that sense and I love that she is for sure. Well, that it comes from her dad too, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, know, he's trying to lowball me, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Now I'm just gonna do quotes from the movie. Are you telling me you negotiated your or you argued your way from a C plus to an A minus? Aren't you proud of me, daddy? I couldn't have been prouder if it was based on actual merit. <laughs> It's interesting how um, the theme of intelligence is used really differently in Clueless, where it, it, it's still for that sort of manipulation, but they they take the whole Clueless aspect a little bit further where Cher comes across as a bit ditzy, where Emma doesn't at all. No. 
Emma is Emma is very self-possessed and um, very confident in her intelligence, but again, she doesn't use it for good. Like I think there's that quote from Knightley, and he says um, after the silly wives comments, it's something along the lines of it would be better to not have the sense that you have than use it as you do. Okay. Any any final sort of wrap up thoughts? I just really enjoyed watching this movie again. And I yeah, me too. thank all the Tash for giving us the yes. use and having such thoughtful things to say about it. Because I think it does have a lot of um, valuable points about, you know, our modern culture and how Jane Austen is applicable now. Yeah. yeah. And I think one of the big things is Amy Heckling really made such a deliberate choice in choosing a high school setting in comparison to Regency society because she's saying that they're common in that there is that stringent social hierarchy, Mm -hmm. yet they value different things. And I think just why Clueless is such an excellent adaptation is the way that Heckling viewed Austen's country village Mm -hmm. and saw the parallels between that and a high school where it's this community where a small group of people are thrown in each other's way and where class and personality and artificiality and um, all of this um, gossip is at the heart of this community. And I think that the reason Heckling chose the high school setting is she's saying that all of these terrible aspects of a social hierarchy that existed in Regency times still exist today. Like maybe society hasn't changed all that much. (laughs) So even though it is such a fun film, like there is that sort of overall criticism of our society in disguise, which is really interesting. And I love that scene where where Cher is taking Ty around and saying who all the groups are. And she's like, that's the Persian mafia. You can't hang with them unless you drive a BMW. You know, yeah. like, it's like very, it's very funny. It's very funny. And it's, it's done. It's very effective. But like you were saying, there's a stratification there that's very obvious. Um, oh, yeah, definitely. So, all right. Thank you so much again uh, for coming on the podcast. I think this has been one of my favorite ones so far. Honestly, this has been super funny and super fun. Um, and I feel like fresh blood. I feel like my mind has been blown several times over the course of this (laughs) hour. So, yes, thank you so much again. And um, we're very honored to have an actual Austin scholar on because um, I was mentioning to to somebody else who was talking about coming on, and they're like, "Well, I'm not, you know, I'm not really a scholar." And I was like, "Maggie and I just freaking bought microphones. Like that's our." Our entire qualifications. Oh, I've been barely doing Kristen's the one who does all the work. I would say Kristen's basically a scholar. I'm really just like the man on the street. Well, I I hope that we never uh, stop having our fans on, as opposed to trying to get celebrity Austin guests. Mm-hmm. Because also, because first of all, we're not important enough to get celebrity Austin guests. But um, <laughs> okay, but secondly, I think that a lot of everyday people and everyday readers who, um, uh, or even even people who actually study Austin as their careers, don't get a lot of exposure and don't get the chance to have these conversations in front of everybody or with at the J Knight community. So I really think this is an important outlet for people who just want to talk 
about Austin and get the new ideas out there. And oh, it so is. And like I, I, I find when I don't have many friends that have that same passion, like listening to you guys is just so, it's just such of a relief to hear that people are <laughs> as crazy as I am. It, it's really comforting that, that I'm not alone in my insanity. <laughs> I have to agree. Feel free to tell us more reasons why you love us. <laughs> I love your laugh. I will say that. I, yes, I always laugh when I hear your laugh. Kristen is famous in the real world and in podcasting world for her amazing laugh. Yeah. <laughs> doctors say there's nothing they can do. So <laughs> My doctor says it's good for my blood pressure. <laughs> All righty. Another successful podcast in the bag. No, don't we have? Don't we need to go to the weed sheath for them? Sure. I mean, I don't know what's in it. You're the one who does it. Gosh darn it! Sorry, I'm not not prepared. Okay, you guys talk amongst yourselves. Tash, didn't you take notes and look at all of our social media and figure Mm -hmm. out who's contacting us? I thought I told you, made it clear that was your job. Um, (laughs) I don't even have Facebook. That's the problem. Oh Oh, really? Wow. It's good. Don't ever get on it. You're you're correct not to have it. Oh, Kristen. Oh, How would God. I know what was going on in the minutia of your life? Whatever. Kristen's Facebook is brilliant. It's yeah, brilliant. I, probably, I try to only post things that are funny. Like, I don't want to be, like, taking up people's time with, you know, like, minutia of my life. But when I got my new job, I was posting, like, multiple times a day, every day, you know, shelfies with me in the bookshelves because now I work in a real – university with like real books <laughs> as opposed to my previous library job the like Kristen new job series was pretty amazing yeah so then I was like posting all the time and now because I'm a librarian and I'm teaching a lot I've um I've I've adopted what the previous librarian did which is using a lot of memes to make points so every time oh. I make yeah. <laughs> Every time I make a meme that I really like, I just post it to my Facebook and I'm like, look, guys, I made this funny meme. And like nobody gets it because they're academic <laughs> related <laughs> memes. Okay. Well, so I'm, I'm convinced that I'm going to start up my Facebook again because I think there's an Austin community out there I need to join. Um, yeah. There's definitely First Impressions podcast Facebook page. Definitely. Yep. I, I will start it up. <laughs> and you know, the, um, the gals at um, Bonnet to Dawn. They have a Facebook group and they actually do read-alongs, which I do personally do not have the energy for at all, but I think is really awesome. So, yeah, I do listen to Bonnets at Dawn, but um, not so keen on the Ronte episodes. Oh, so, really? Uh, we're, we're kindred I, I spirits. Like them, but I just, I, I like the Bronte sisters, but Jane Austen is Austin's the one. I don't um, listen to any other Jane Austen podcasts. Yeah, so I guess the only wheat sheaf so that we – we really have um, is that uh, everybody has seen who is on the Facebook page um, that we have a couple of listeners who actually have come out with um, Jane Austen fan fiction works or like sequels or takeoffs. And so if you're interested in that, uh, you don't have to have a Facebook account to see our Facebook page. You can just go search first impression podcast impressions, podcast, Facebook, and anyone can see it. And there are a couple of books there that I just recently posted by, um, to fans of the podcast. So awesome for them and thank them for letting us know about that. And then the only other thing that I think we got that's new. Oh, is it, I'll, I'll ask you, you guys this and Tash, you can join in. What do you think this is Yuzini who has written in. 
What do you think that of the theory that Darcy had Asperger's? Asperger's. Oh, I think I, I disagree. I, yeah. I think as, as someone who is, I'm actually very, very shy and very introverted unless I'm talking about these sort of things. And I think it's just, I wouldn't say it's helpful to be reading, to be reading those sort of modern concepts into classic literature. I think it can be very dangerous as well in other people's interpretation of, um, say, what Jane Austen originally intended. I totally agree. I, I think that um, I understand why people are saying that, but, you know, it's sort of a faux, a sort of um, false sort of behaviors that in some ways might be seen as similar, but brought on not by any kind of gene- genetic issue, but be not um and I don't actually, I mean, I know there's a genetic component to the spectrum, but his problem has been being poorly socialized yeah. and encouraged by his parents, who he said were great people in every other way, but just to think meanly of everybody else. And I, I think he was exposed to some bad ideas when he was young. I think we can definitely just point to that and say. I don't think it, I don't think it brings anything to the reading of the story. And I yeah, think it's yeah. used by, I mean, this is a broad generalization, so apologies to anyone if this is not how you view it. I think it's used by people to excuse his kind of gross behavior. Now, makes sense. let's bring it back to our very first episode in which I said Darcy was my um, avatar for a uh, person with social anxiety. Right. I will say from an, a phenomenological perspective um, that the experience of engaging with Austin had value for mental health reasons to put things in perspective. But I think that's, I think that's very different than, than diagnosing somebody on the page. I think we have to make that distinction. And I suppose actually going back to, um, we mentioned bibliotherapy earlier. I do think that from a personal point of view, I think people do have the right to read into books however they choose, if that helps them to make it more relevant to themselves as well. I agree. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for me, it's kind of like, you know, how the Harry Potter community, and I'm sure the Jane Austen community, um, if you disagree with someone's interpretation, it's not like a, oh, okay, well, I never thought about that, but that's interesting. It's a, you're wrong, and, yeah. you're wrong, oh, yeah. and yeah. I will destroy your theory. And so coming up with things like that, it just seems like another way of like attacking people. Like, this is my thesis, and this is why I think it's right. And if you think I'm wrong, then you're dumb, and you don't understand mental illness. And it just seems like, when I say it doesn't really give any value to it, it just seems like a way for people to find things to fight about. Whether something yeah. there's no yeah. way to know because guess what? Darcy's not a real person. <laughs> Although it breaks my heart. <laughs> I never knew. <laughs> We're all walking me, around. Like, why argue that point? And I don't want, and again, like I hope this doesn't come off bad, where it's like, I'm not interested in hearing your theory. I think it's interesting and let's talk about it. But I mean, it's not worth getting mad at each other about. Yeah, definitely. I think we've got enough conflict in in that sort of thing. I don't have, like, there are real authoritarian dictatorships right now. I don't have the energy to get into a Harry Hermione, fan, like, oh whether they are meant to be together ship fight with yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, so I am enjoying this. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. I hope I made clear what I was saying, because I obviously don't want to, if people enjoy finding those kind of things and thinking about them and looking for examples, I I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just not, I don't know. Maggie and I have actually had a number of Facebook uh, posts and threads, private ones, you know, on our private Facebook, where we've wound up getting into trouble with various friends for being outspoken about our opinions. Well, I just basically trash the Brontes every chance I get. And I think it's funny. I think it's funny. And then we have a friend who likes the Brontes and she's not a a fan. Um, But uh, I remember Maggie um, talking about Twilight and having some like conversations about that. And then we wound up talking about Fifty Shades of Grey, which is actually a very productive discussion. But the the overarching theme is like, don't yuck somebody else's yum. Like don't, if somebody else finds value in something, let them have their happy place. And I think we're both on the same page with that. Yeah, I just Except if you like the Brontes, because then you're dumb. I think (laughs) for me, it's more like when someone takes that theory and then they, it's the one thing that they believe and then they're, they will sit on that hill and die on it and attack people if they don't, if they disagree that. So when people kind of read in these modern ideas into characters like that, it's just, it it kind of turns me off personally because I always see it going down a darker. Oh my God. You know what we have to do? And we've said we were going to do this before and we still have to do it. We have to read Among the Janites. And I mean, we've read. I was just going to ask you about that when you were talking about having on some like famous Jane Austen people. I'm like, who are famous Jane Austen people? Oh my God. Well, okay. (laughs) First of all, first of all, Arnie Arnie is actually famous. Arnie is famous. So we've already had Arnie. (laughs) But actually, I'm like, it's so much more interesting to have like the fan, you know, like just people who don't get a chance to get on and talk about it and who have so much bottled up passion like I did when I first started this. I think that's more interesting. I'd like to do more of these be honest. Kristen, Kristen, what do you think we could ever get Jane Austen to be a guest (laughs) on the podcast? (laughs) Oh my God. Jane Austen (laughs) follows us on Facebook. No, this is really funny. Okay. So we have a fan uh, from Brazil, I believe who has created a Facebook account and the name is just Jane Austen spelled like Jane Austen, you know, and then they, they, that person, uh, she followed us on our Facebook page. And so I got a notification in my notification (laughs) that Jane Austen follows you on Facebook. And I was like, hot damn, we made it. Okay. Would this, would this interview have to be a Ouija board, B seance or C zombie Jane Austen? Just ask me and I'll tell you exactly what Jane Austen would have said and exactly what she thought. Oh my all God, times. can we do this? Can we do like an episode <laughs> where I interview you? <laughs> oh my God. Did you ever see the um, Oscar acceptance speech from Emma Thompson where yes, she wrote it? Do you know in- what? At the time, oh, yeah. I thought it was so long and boring. I fast forwarded through it. At the oh no. Aired. Yep. It was hysterical. No, it's, it is now that I actually appreciate it. But I'm like, <laughs> just get your award and get off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it's time to say it's time to say goodbye then. Okay, thank you, Tash. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much Tash. For me. It was amazing. <laughs> all right, all right. Goodbye, everybody. We have delighted you long enough.